And so I also think the idea of allyship means there's not one right way. And so sometimes people are looking for like a checklist of like, what can I do? What can I prove? How can I be? Instead of just changing, instead of just like it's easy, it's not easy. But instead of focusing on a perspective shift where it's like, okay, how am I seeing the world? Let me change the lens in which I see people, um, how I'm respecting people, how I'm valuing everybody. And in that context, I can be a better ally because I'm just seeing things differently. And I think that's the better approach to it instead of saying, I did this, I did this, I did this as a checklist, which we know doesn't work the best. Welcome to the Voices of Inclusion podcast, the place where you'll hear strategic and tactical advice shared by diversity, equity, and inclusion experts. This podcast is brought to you by Matheson.io, the world's first DEI operating system. If you're looking for DEI assessments, benchmarking tools, sourcing support, training, and more, look no further. Go to matheson.io. The link to connect with us is in the description. Let's get back to the episode. So Erica Lynette Edwards, um, I know you as an incredible DEI leader, uh, someone who hosts great um, uh, DEI workshops and uh, facilitations, um, and also you're an incredible speaker. Um, but for the people that don't know, don't know you yet, could you let us know a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yes, of course. Thank you for that. Um, my name is Erica Lynette Edwards. My pronouns are she, her, and I am committed to creating workplaces where everyone can flourish. And so I do that through my public speaking and through my workshop facilitation. I have the unique opportunity of doing that for a variety of clients. So sometimes I'm doing that for the, the arts and culture scene and other times I'm doing that for corporations. So I go from global corporations to really small uh, companies um, that are really pursuing diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. Uh, and I'm really proud that I'm able to provide people a welcoming place to really unpack these challenging issues. That's amazing. Well, you know, one of the first things I wanted to chat with you about is the fact that you've really lived many people's dreams already uh, of becoming a ballerina. Now you're in DEI, but talk to us a little bit about the experience of being a ballerina in that transition to being a DEI professional. Sure. Uh, I'd like to say I've like lived multiple lives, multiple careers. <laughs> like I um, am very fulfilled with what I've done so far. Uh, a friend just told me I should write a book and call it like I've done it all because I really have done a lot of random things <laughs> based on my life experiences. But I, um, I loved dancing since I was young. My cousin was in the Nutcracker when I was young. My mom said I loved it. So she put me in ballet classes. And I, from there, I was able to pursue a dream career, becoming a ballerina. So I joined the Joffrey Ballet um, in 2000 as a teenager and uh, really spent a lot of time dancing across stages nationally and internationally. Um, I did that for 15 years. And then after that, I retired and became the director of community engagement at the Joffrey Ballet. And so I went from dancing to a senior leadership role, and I love that work. Um, as a ballerina, I am known for being a Black ballerina because of the lack of diversity of race, um, especially of Black dancers um, in the ballet scene. And so, as you probably know, um, people like Missy Copeland are now have been the like public-facing person of this movement to understand, hey, where are the black ballerinas? As well as like Teresa Ruth Howard at Mob Ballet. 
But because I was seen as a black ballerina, because I was often alone in my dance classes or even in roles that I did, or maybe I was like the first, sometimes I was the first black ballerina to do a role. Um, I became like a, a face of like diversity, right? Or like, oh, let's celebrate her. And so I'm really lucky to have had opportunities to be like an Ebony magazine as a young leader of the future in the arts. And I think it's really funny that they profiled me that long ago to see the work I'm doing now and supporting both arts and culture and corporations in this DEI work. And so my role as a black ballerina really led me in this path of diversity, equity, inclusion. One, because I, um, I just, people just saw me, right? <laughs> They're like, oh, we see you. <laughs> we see you up on that stage. And so that led to some panel discussions and people asking me to do some work. Um, from there though, I found that as I became a senior leader, I became the leader that could change the workplaces that I was in. And so because I was sometimes singled out for being a black ballerina, Sometimes it was a good thing where I could be celebrated, but a lot of times it was not a good thing where it's like, oh, I'm treated a certain way because of my skin color. And so when I became a leader in this work, I was like, hey, things don't have to be the same way they've always been. I can make changes and I have the power to make changes. I'm in charge of my budget. I'm in charge of programs. I'm in charge of all the HR profiling <laughs> of like hiring, recruiting, creating and updating policies. And through that, I was like, I can make the change that will make a lasting difference. So people do not have to have the same workplace that was not inclusive that I had. And so that's kind of the trajectory of my, my career, both as a ballerina, as a dancer, but also to become a leader in the DEI scene. Wow, that's an amazing arc. And uh, after seeing you on the TEDx stage, I was like, man, she is floating on that stage. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> it makes sense that you did ballet. Um, but when it comes to transferable skills, you kind of touched on a, a little bit of them a minute ago, but um, what's your favorite transferable skills, uh, what was transferable skill that you have from um, being a ballerina to um, your DEI uh, work? I think my, the best, transferable skill is uh, two parts, discipline and performance. And so with the discipline, it's like, I'm making this happen. This will happen. I have a deadline, this will happen, right? And setting these goals for myself. And I think it goes in align with the performance aspect too, because the performance, it has to happen. There's like the show must go on, right? That saying happens. Um, and with a performance, it's like, okay, tonight's opening night, This is this done? <laughs> There's that accountability, right? Where it's like, okay, you got to make it happen. I think in that same light with that performance, it comes the preparation where I'm like, I prepared myself for this work. I've done my work. I've done my studying. Um, I, I built my knowledge to make sure that I'm pr properly prepared to do the work. And then it's like, okay, it's my time to shine, whether that's public speaking or whether that's leading people through facilitation, having that energy, as well as having that knowledge to make sure um, I'm presenting the best I can every single time I step in front of somebody. Yeah, and I can definitely tell that. Um, that's just awesome. Um, and you know, when you work with your the companies that you, um, that you consult for, um, what are a couple what are a couple of the key issues that you see most companies facing 
when it comes to diving into the work, um, when it comes to starting? What are you seeing? I have found that a lot of people are like, this sounds like a good idea. <laughs> Diversity, equity, inclusion sounds important. How do we do it, right? Like, it, we want to be good people and people often equate um, this work to being good or being bad. And I don't see it that way at all. It's uh, really about how are we going to, I like to say in easy terms, it's really about how we're respecting people in the workplace and respecting people. You really have to get to know more about people. Um, one of the sessions I do is about cultural awareness, where it's like we understand different people's cultural backgrounds and understand how their cultural background really influences how they show up at work. But not only how they show up at work, but how they interact with other people, right? And so what does respect look like to you? Well, what does respect look like to somebody else? And if there's like a clash there, or a conflict there, oftentimes people are like, well, like we just don't get along, sort of understanding the differences of how people interact with each other. So I think that's one thing. I also think there is, uh, we use a lot of coded language. And so even with diversity, equity, inclusion, it's people are like, well, what do you mean by that? And they, we just throw out these words and they can mean so many things. And so I really like to establish shared understandings. So when we're using this language, we all mean the exact same thing. So if we're actually talking about a specific group of people, we need to say we're talking about this like a specific group of people instead of saying, oh, diversity, which could include so many types of people and identities. Yeah, I, I think you touched on a really great point when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Some people are, I remember, especially being a recruiter, hey, this will be a really easy diversity hire. And it's always a weird <laughs> phrase to listen to. Mm -hmm. But um, when it comes to things like that, you know, someone may consult someone and say, hey, don't say that. <laughs> um, are there some things that you have to let people know not to say, or how do you approach uh, those uncomfortable conversations? Yes. Yeah, so I have part of my background, I will, like I said, I've done all the things, right? So part of my background is um, working in TRHT, Truth Racial Healing and Transformation, as a racial healing uh, circle facilitator. And so in that work, we practice uh, empathy and practice bringing people in and having these uncomfortable conversations and the self-reflection. I've also done anti-racism training. And so through that, I, be I was becoming a trainer in anti-racism. And so really understanding when these hard issues are coming up, what to say, how to react, how to interact, um, making sure that my work is rooted in positivity, but also reality at the same time. So I'm not gonna just spread lies, right? But I, the truth's gonna be there, but in a way that people can take it in and don't feel threatened. I've also um, done mental health first aid training where I'm understanding how people are coming into my space and being like, what am I seeing from you? How can I interact with you in a positive way? Listening with purpose, compassion, and empathy. And so I've done a lot of this work behind the scenes. I've also done, um, uh, I'm a certified mediator as well. And so I really understand how to come to people and be like, okay, how can we get along right here? What questions do you need? What answers do you need to make sure we feel good and we come to a resolution? And also my bachelor's in, is in human resource management. So all these things tied together along with my life experiences as well, really have given me the format to really make people feel welcome in these uncomfortable situations. And um, that's how I approach things. I make sure I hear everybody. I let people speak. If people say something that we don't agree with, 
um, I always have group agreements. So one of my favorite group agreements comes from the circle of trust group agreements. And that is uh, when things get difficult, turn to wonder. And so we say, if someone says something that you don't like, um, that you are like, I can't believe they said that. Instead of shutting down in defense, we ask you to turn to wonder. I wonder what experiences they had for them to say that. I wonder what assumptions they've made. What is their background? Where are they from? And turning to wonder to understand why people say the things they do or believe the things they do instead of just shutting down. Allyship is a huge topic right now and people are trying to, or how, how do I become a really good ally to people? Um, what's the best approach there? Do you have thoughts on allyship and the best way to go about it? Yes. Um, allyship is interesting <laughs> because I think it depends on the context you're in and how you can be an ally. There's so many things that are said about it. Like um, if you're an al if you're an ally, you don't get to give yourself the title. Someone else says you are my ally, right? And then some people will say, well, I don't want you to be my ally. I want you to be my um, right next to me, like in the battle right next to me instead of just being off the side, right? And I think we've seen people be allies in so many different ways. Uh, and I think people should continue doing that work. Um, but there's just so many ways to get into it. And so I also think the idea of allyship means there's not one right way. And so sometimes people are looking for like a checklist of like, what can I do? What can I prove? How can I be? Instead of just changing, instead of just like it's easy, it's not easy. But instead of focusing on a perspective shift where it's like, okay, how am I seeing the world? Let me change the lens in which I see people, um, how I'm respecting people, how I'm valuing everybody. And in that context, I can be a better ally because I'm just seeing things differently. And I think that's the, better approach to it instead of saying I did this I did this I did this as a checklist which we know doesn't work the best yeah um and that kind of uh I feel like there's always a question of hey are we doing enough DEI work um especially with with people that aren't necessarily DEI leaders per se um is there an enough when it comes to DEI or is it something that's continuous and um yeah what are your thoughts on that yeah, I love that you said continuous. I totally agree that it's ongoing work. And I think that goes back to this idea of why the checklist doesn't work, right? Because the checklist is never ending. <laughs> it's just like you check one thing off, great. Now what's the next level? How do you make that even better? How do you upgrade that? And when it comes to this work as an ongoing matter, we have to understand that there are quick wins. And so I think sometimes we forget we're already doing great stuff and we need to sustain that or upgrade it. So we always wanna give credit to like, something is being done, hopefully, right? Because <laughs> hopefully something's already being done and you're like, wonderful, we're, we're on our way. Now, what are we not doing? And when we think about what we're not doing, we can think about why isn't it done yet? Does this require more resources? Does this require an investment? Um, does this require more capacity? And what's needed to make that happen? So sometimes it's resources. But we also have to remember, sometimes it's just like, oh, I didn't know I could do that. Or, or what I love to do in facilitation is have people share what they're already doing. And so someone else will be like, oh, I didn't know you were doing that. I can do that too. And so it doesn't become an extra burden, an extra initiative. It's just easily baked into what you're already doing. And I think there is a time and a place for new initiatives that are like, take the time and resources to do. 
And there's time for like, I'm just gonna change my language. I didn't need to, I didn't need the money to make that happen. Just changed my language and I made things easier for people. That's great advice. Um, and you know, I think one of the challenges that people are facing, especially in DEI right now, is a lot of uh, chief diversity officers are, are white or like, you know, um, have you uh, had challenges with uh, communicating with people around how to deal with that? Or basically, if it's, does, a, does a CDO, Chief Diversity Officer that is white, have they come to you saying, hey, I don't necessarily know exactly what to do here. I'm in a weird position. How does that work? I have not had that experience before. I did recently see that um, on LinkedIn, a post sharing those high percentages. Um I think what's really interesting though, as we think about the work, and if we really go to the definition of diversity, oh, I wish I remember the, the source. I, I'll think about it. <laughs> but there's a, there's a definition I love. Um, I think it's from the, there's a two part definition of diversity that I really love. And the first part really breaks down that diversity can be a whole lot of identities. And in all those identities, it could be things that you see and you don't see. So things you might see obviously could be like race that you might make an assumption of someone's race from what you see, right? But some things you might not see are like socioeconomic status or um, other things that you can't see, an invisible disability, right? And so I think when we think about that term diversity, we have to understand if we're using that term, it really encompasses so many people. My favorite part of that definition, which I can remember, I remember I got it from, is the Baltimore Racial Ju Racial Justice Institute, I believe. I'm so sorry if I'm messing that up. But they're part of the second part of that definition that's so great is they're like, diversity alone is not good enough. You must have equity in there. You must have inclusion in there. Because they understand that one of these parts of this three-part pillar of diversity, equity, inclusion can't just stand alone. You need all three to come together. And when you think about all those things together is when you get into more of an idea of, okay, who are marginalized communities? Who, <laughs> where does equity stand in here and how can we boost that up? And so if you're saying I have a chief diversity officer, I think you're missing a whole other, the whole other parts of the DEI, I don't know, ideology, I would say. And so when it comes to diversity, that can be so many people. And that, and that's what I, that's where I see it as. And if we're being just like literal with the term and the title, I, I can understand why it's like the way it is. In my work, I really like to think, how can I work on anti-oppression? <laughs> and I think that's an easier um, way for me to, to see the work. Now, if someone's like, I'm working on racial equity right now. I'm like, okay, that's my focus. If I'm working on diversity of fill in the blank, then that's what I'm working on. And I think that goes back to this idea of coded language, where instead of just saying who, what, who you mean, what you mean, we use these words. And so I often think about like, what can I call myself? That's not like a DEI um, subject matter expert, because I really see myself more than that and don't want to live by the labels, but also the labels are there. So people know what I do. <laughs> so it's like catch 22 where you're like, hmm. How do I see myself? What do people say this is? And how do I come to some place in the middle? I totally get that. And um, you mentioned something that's really important. Uh, I know that you're in an, in 
an awesome transition period right now. You're focusing a little bit more on a different part of your uh, skill set. Could you talk a little bit about that? I am proud to be known from a Black ballerina that has transitioned to the DEI work. And people are always asking me to tell my story and share more information. Even when I did the TEDx talk, um, it was after I was in Crane's business as 40 under 40. And so people reaching out to me for all these things. And I was like, okay, what's going on? And when people talk about my TEDx talk, I'm like, well, thanks. Like that was the first time I had prepped specifically for like a DEI speech. Um, and I am glad that it has resonated with people so well. I would also say too, as I spoke about my dance journey on there a little bit, I was still in the place where I danced. So I could have had to hold things back, you know, and keep and keep things light. Um, but I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed that opportunity. I will say some behind the scenes with that TEDx talk was um, my mic wasn't working <laughs> to when I got started. And so when I got started, I forgot how I opened it. Something like with a question. And, I, and I'm like, what? And I'm like, they told me what I would be able to hear. And I'm like, I don't hear it. So I asked again, people in the audience were like, I, I heard you the first time. Why are you asking this question again? And then I had to go off to the side for some technical difficulties. And in that time, I told people, I'm not dancing. I'm sorry, I'm retired. I don't dance anymore. You just have to wait for, for me to give my speech again. And I just found so much ease and fun in, in doing that. And so um, as people ask me to do more, I'm like, yes, I will do more. And so I've definitely had to focus more on public speaking as well as my facilitation of workshops um, because I do believe people want to hear my story because they've asked me. <laughs> so yeah, thanks for asking me about that. Oh, of course. Um, yeah, and that sounds like a perfect one-two punch. Like, you know, um, but I know that you've been on both sides when it comes to um, being a DEI leader internally, as well as one on the external side. Um, a lot of people are having tr trouble when it comes to DEI budgets and how to secure those budgets. Um, do you have a tip on how we can secure those DEI budgets? Yes. No. Maybe so. <laughs> so I was thinking like both and I was like, okay, let me put it in the middle. So um, yes, internally, when I could make my own budget, I could say this is what I'm doing for a DEI. I highly recommend that there is a DEI budget. If you do not have a DEI leader, you definitely have a, have a DEI budget. If you do have a DEI leader, you definitely have to have a DEI budget, right? And so I think part of the responsibility that comes from doing DEI in a company is that everyone has to do it. It can't just fall on one person to be like, I'm the person. Everyone has to commit to doing it. And what I love to have, why I love having budgets in every department is that there's some accountability. You had money. Did you use it? How did you use it? Why didn't you use it, right? Um, and that's why I love having money in everybody's budget for it. Now, how much is that? I don't know. Hey, did you use your money? Did you not use the money? How did you use the money, right? So everyone can have some accountability there. I also think it gives opportunity for professional development as well. For um, people who are leaders of DEI and their spaces, I think sometimes what happens is they become like not only the leader and the person has the knowledge, but also the person that things just fall upon, right? 
And they're like, oh, well, you can do that. Not understanding that they're there to support the DEI and the whole company. Uh, I So I found that as an internal person, right? Now as an external consultant, what I love doing is supporting the initiatives and the leader that's already there. And so sometimes it might be like, well, I already said this. And I'm like, I agree. I will say that too. And sometimes as an outside person, they're like, okay, you said that, <laughs> we get that, which is unfortunate, but it helps. Um, and then sometimes it helps because I can say it in a different way. And then sometimes it helps the most is when internally people are like, oh, I don't know how I feel about this. But when you have someone come in from the outside and share and give advice, it no longer falls on, the challenges no longer fall on that person that's there internally still. So I, as an outsider, it, you don't have to like me all the time. I could say something like, I hear what you're saying, but have you thought about this? And that make, may not make you happy, but it's the right way forward. And it no longer falls on the person that has to go back to work with their peers um, on the day-to-day -to, -day to send or give out that, I don't know, I don't wanna say bad news, but challenging news where people sometimes will try to get, not try, will try, sometimes get defensive. Um, and so that's where I see a lot of my work in, where I'm like, hey, I'm here for you what things are already happening? What can I help with? What can I really pick apart um, to best support a company? Um, and when it comes to that arc of um, strategic support and then execution, how long is that time time horizon? Is it is it six months? Is it a year? Um, how, how does that work typically? It all depends on who I'm working with. And so for some people, they're at their very beginning and it's like, okay, let's start set some great foundational work. Um, and then some people are like, we've been doing this for a while. And you're like, yes, that means more people have buy-in, right? <laughs> like this will be so much better. Um, so it just depends on where the company is. I'm really proud that I've been able to align myself to where people are, even though I've been very far on my journey. Um, because it's the work I've committed to and I'm passionate about, I know people are not where I'm at. I also know that there's some people in the company who might be, and then some other people who are like, I don't know what that word means, right? And so by developing these shared understandings, I think that's the greatest first step forward. So I really like doing that through workshops. Um, like I said, cultural awareness is an easy end because we can talk about culture. Um, and then another way in, I, I have a session called Demystifying DEI, where we really break down what diversity, equity, inclusion really is and how it becomes implemented into a company. Understanding that sometimes the strategies require more work and sometimes they're really easy. Like, oh, I didn't know I could do that. Let me do that tomorrow. And I know you're in Chicago. And so um, Chicago is one of those beautiful places, similar to New York, where there's uh, you know a myriad of uh, people here. Um, you encounter problems that are kind of geographically um, kind of associated with what you do, or is it kind of, does everybody have the same problems across the board from, from your experience? Yes. Um, I will say one session I did about microaggressions and we talked about language and what's used. And we talked about the term, you guys. And we are like, well, I'm in the Midwest. We say you guys all the time, right? And they're like, well, what people are like, I don't feel comfortable with that phrase. What do you do? And I'm like, oh, I didn't even think about that because geographically it's just the norm, right? And so people, people are like, I don't want to be called a guy. I'm not a guy. And you're like, oh, geez, I didn't even think about that. 
And so we don't always have all the answers, right? But being aware of, oh, I didn't think about that is like one of my first steps that I really like to bring forward. And that's definitely based on geographic uh, language and what linguistics, I don't know. <laughs> Um, and then I think about um, if we're working with like a global corporation or even national, you think about what laws are being put into place about what you can share to who, um, for example, is that too woke, quote unquote, is that too woke? Um, and you and this person is from a certain state in America, so they don't have to be on the training or they shouldn't be on that session. So I think we've been extra aware of geography specifically because of laws that are being put into action um, so that we are abiding by laws ooh, to do DEI work. I think that also goes to this idea though of um, my HR background. So when it comes to like hiring and recruiting, and I remember when I, I first started as a senior leader, I didn't have that background. And as I was recruiting and hiring people, I was like, oh, learning. Oh, I should not say this. I can't ask this. And if you don't have that background, how do you even know these things, right? And if you don't even know these things, I even, that's even before DEI comes into place. Um, and so, yeah, geography makes a big difference, more so now than ever, about how uh, we talk to people, invite people into spaces, and the subject matter that we actually talk about. What's the one problem that you see a lot of companies face right now? Um, or even what's the, I think there's, I think there's been a lot of issues, especially after 2020, um, that companies have definitely acknowledged. But um, since 2020, is there any particular issue that you see uh, that you commonly have to try to maybe not fix, but uh, address? Hmm, that's a great question. I think there's a lot. <laughs> um, because, and also if there weren't a lot, then I wouldn't have my job doing this work, right? <laughs> it's ongoing work. Um, I'm trying to pinpoint a couple of things. And one thing I would say is senior leadership needs to be leaders in this work. And so when the leaders are on board, then it's easier for things to happen. When people who are more of an entry-level status are like, I see how we could, this could be better and they speak up. There's always this fear of like retaliation or like, uh, I, I, I'm new here, but I'm trying to speak up, right? And so when the senior leaders say, we're committed to this work, when the board says, uh, this is one of our goals for the year, then it's so much easier for me to come in and say, everyone has to buy into this. Why? Your board said you're doing this work. Why? The CEO says we're doing this work, right? And it's no longer about, well, this is how I feel and this is what I wanna do. No, you have to report to these people. And so if they say we're doing it, <laughs> there's going to be some accountability. So that's, I think, the best way forward. If senior leadership says we're doing it, as it there's more buy-in for it to be done, not because of personal feelings, but because it's a goal for the company. And um, from the companies I've worked with, it's been so much easier um, coming in when senior leadership is on board. So I think that's a big one. Um, I also think people get stuck with the why behind why they're doing the work. And I, even with that term diversity, right? I really, when I start with the people are like, oh, 
they can find themselves in DEI. So I'm like, oh yeah, I'll help you find your eye in DEI, right? Where it's like, okay, I see myself in here or I see my family in here. Um, and I didn't understand this was for everybody. I also think because we can use the terms DEI, sometimes we, the people who are most marginalized or most have historically marginalized identities often um, might not see the equity show up for them, right? And so once again, going to that code of language, if you are working on recruitment and you really want more black people, maybe you need to say, we're looking to increase uh, black people in this, in the tech field, right? Um, and so I, I think being very clear about what you're trying to do helps with those goals, helps with the accountability, but um, helps with understanding why you're doing it. Well, historically we've kept people out. Historically, this has happened. That's why we're making these changes. Um, and I think that's very helpful. Awesome. You've given so much great advice. Um, before we ask you the last question, uh, could you let our listeners know um, how they should reach out to you if they want to get in contact? Sure. You can go to my website, ericlinette.com, E-R-I-C-A-L-Y-N-E-T-T-E.com. And you can just, I have a contact form of connecting with me on there and I will get back to you. Nice. That sounds great. Um, so if there was one action that you would urge our DEI leaders, hiring managers um, to take after listening to this episode, what would that action be? If you are in the DEI space, I would ask you to keep on pushing on and then rest when you need to and then keep on pushing on because it's a lot of work. Sometimes we, we especially for me, I feel like sometimes it's like a, a um, extra weight on my shoulders where I'm like, I'm fighting um, for fairness, for respect, for justice, for all the things, right? And understand, okay, I need to pause, breathe, and then come back to the work, I think is really helpful to remember. We can't end it any better than that. Erica, Lynette Edwards, thank you so much for joining us for the Voices of Inclusion podcast. This was awesome. Thanks, Robert. Happy to be here. If you're looking for DEI assessments, benchmarking tools, sourcing support, training, and more, look no further. Go to www.matheson.io and book a call to speak with us. The link is in the description. We're looking forward to connecting with you next time.